Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a Christian program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm J. Dylan Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And of course, Pastor Amanda Sparrow is part of our clergy gang as well. We'll be joining her shortly at the Parthenon. Today, we're going to be talking about beauty and art, then we're going to take an examination of St. Patrick, and then we're going to wrap things up with, again, a discussion on beauty and art, and we're going to do that through the joy of synthesizing. So today we have an interesting question for you, and it may seem simple uh, when you first hear it, but let's take time to really think about it. Our question is, what is beauty? Now surely you've heard the phrase that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but what if we challenge that just a little bit? Sure, aesthetics may change from person to person, but what if true beauty was connected to something deeper? Oscar Wilde had a statement about art and its pursuit. He said that art should not try to pursue a reality, truth, but instead lying, the telling of beautiful, untrue things is the ultimate aim of art. Now this, of course, is in wild contrast to ancient philosophers and artists who saw that beauty was connected to truth and for something to truly be beautiful, it had to be truthful. We really want to challenge the idea of beauty being in the eye of the beholder. As we go back and we study many of the ancient artists which have bestowed such wonderful works on us throughout time, we'll find that beauty is something which is really connected to an objective truth. I really want us to think of beauty as an interpretation of the truth. And now that may be something which is a little bit peculiar for you, but I really want us to emphasize this. Beauty is not something which is just random or subjective or beginning from inside ourselves, but it really is connected to some external truth which is transcendent and we can find it throughout time. Beauty is something which again is the interpretation of truth. The more beautiful something is, the more close in proximity it is to a given truth. As we look throughout time, whether it be a poet, an architect, a sculptor, or a painter, we can always find that artists are pursuing some transcendent truth and trying to communicate that to the world around them. If we look at someone like Michelangelo, who was the sculptor of the, the very famous David, as we look at him in his early life, in his youth, he would go to public dissections and he himself would spend time in the morgue dissecting corpses, looking at what people were like on the inside so that he would be able to produce something which was connected to the true human form. Now, of course, many of these sculptures are, are seemingly without flaw. Now, of course, the sculptors knew that no one person actually looked like this. People had very different features about them. But they were looking for something not to, to reflect sort of an idea of a human, but they were looking for something that we could all admire and say, this is something about the human form, which is a truth which can surpass us all. And again, the closer it gets to the truth, the more beautiful it is. Alright, so today we're filming at the Parthenon, a reconstruction here in Nashville, Tennessee. It's pretty iconic and well-known piece of architecture. Another piece of architecture you might be familiar with is the Clock Tower in London. Uh, it's also known as Big Ben, but Big Ben only refers to uh, the clock in the Clock Tower. Anyways, the Clock Tower was designed by a man named Pugin in the 1800s. Pugin also uh, was a great observer of what was happening around him. As he looked around him, he saw in architecture this movement towards um, allusions to things that looked like they were what they were supposed to be, but really weren't. Uh, there were columns that weren't made out of stone or concrete. There were porches that weren't useful. There were buildings designed to look large and impressive, but when you got inside, you found out they were actually quite small. And so Pugin was 
credit it with saying it's okay to decorate construction, but never okay to construct decorations. As we continue this conversation of beauty and truth, basically what he was saying is this, is it has to be related to a truth. Architecture or art or really whatever part of life has to be connected to a truth for it to truly be beautiful. Otherwise, it is merely an illusion. When the ancient Greeks began constructing the original Parthenon, 400 years before Christ, they wanted to produce something that was truly beautiful. And you can observe this even in their pillars. Now, what was so special about what the Greeks did with their pillars was that whenever the light would come in off the pillars to your eye, it would bend through the air, making it seem as though it was caving in on the bottom. To compensate for this, they made the columns thicker at the bottom. Now. Artists of old were not people who just worked in one area, but they excelled in many different disciplines, such as sculpting, architecture, invention, early forms of scientists, and so on. They were critical thinkers in every imaginable way. Now there's a term to refer to these people, and it is called Renaissance men. Now it doesn't only refer to those who were in the Renaissance, but refers to people who excelled in many different disciplines of art, such as this. And they did this to pursue reality from every perspective they could. All right, in wrapping up our conversation today, I want us to start thinking about art as a whole in terms of fiction as opposed to nonfiction. Now, you may think of some sort of storytelling when we use the language of fiction and nonfiction, something like a movie or perhaps even an audio book or even something like a book itself, even though this is the later days in the 21st century. But all this time, I want us to think about all art as fiction or nonfiction. The architect Pugin back in the 1800s, he was very upset with the fictional architecture around him. The buildings aesthetically did not match the actual structure beneath them. They were not communicating a truth. They had moved into the world of fiction. We also see people like Vincent van Gogh painting beautiful works such as The Starry Night. Again, when we look at this, we see that it is still connected to a truth, though it's moved very far out on the peripherals of such a truth. It is still within the realm of nonfiction, but is getting very close to the idea of fiction. And as we've seen art evolve in the 21st century, we've seen this movement sort of in a postmodern era where art is now abstract. It's no longer connected to a truth and reality. It has clearly moved into the realm of fiction. This is something which is just a bit of food for thought. It's a bit of critical thinking as we examine the world around us. I want us to be clear thinkers as we receive the art which the world hands to us, and I want us to be able to file that appropriately as fiction or nonfiction. Just think about that and think about beauty not being in the eye of the beholder, but think of beauty as the interpretation of truth. We had a lot of fun over at the Parthenon making that film. However, we don't always preview our films before we put them online. A lot of times we do all of our filming on Friday. We're not able to parse it out throughout the week just with all the duties that we have. However, this week, with scheduling and whatnot, Amanda is not able to be with us on Friday, so we filmed that earlier this week. And we actually got to preview that section with some of my local parishioners here at Jolton. Interestingly, and thank you very much, Janelle, for pointing this out. We didn't even notice it when we were filming it. You may have noticed in the first scene where Amanda is introducing the film that there's a pixelated section on the Parthenon in the lower middle section there of the columns. And what was happening was there was someone who, we'll say, was sleeping there who had decided to get up and start stripping their clothes off. And that was going on in full view of the camera. However, we did pixelate that, but... Yeah, that's one of the things you get when you go to, to public places, I suppose. However, this is one of the many reasons to enjoy living somewhere like Jolton, out in the, the country of, of 
Tennessee. You can go outside, you can sit on your windback chairs, and you don't really have to worry about seeing any nudity. I will say, the type of stuff that goes on without you even noticing is crazy, man. We had no idea that he was out there, you know? And for all we know, we cut off the video before he got the job finished, but it didn't seem like he was stopping, so, you know. <laughs> no, and, and, you know, we normally don't preview things with people, so thank goodness we did. And thank you, Janelle, for, for previewing that and pointing that out to us. That is a, a blessing. Anyways, we'll be back here in just a moment for Hot Not or Sanctified. Today we're going to be talking about St. Patrick, so bear with us and you'll get to hear that story. It's time for our weekly game of Hot, Not, or Sanctified as we study church history. Now, normally when we do Hot, Not, or Sanctified, we will examine two items from church history, but for today we're only going to be examining one, and that is St. Patrick, considering that this is the week of St. Patrick's Day. Now, how Hot, Not, or Sanctified works is simply this. We will examine an item from church history, we will give an overview of that item, and then we will go around cord purgatory asking the question, is this item hot, not, or sanctified? When we use the language sanctified, what we are meaning is not that the item is necessarily sanctified or holy, but only that God's sanctified judgment can rule whether or not this is a hot theological inspiration or not. So, let's go ahead and investigate St. Patrick and see what we can find out about this character from church history. Patrick was born in 387 AD, and he passed away on March 17th, 461. Of course, this is why we associate March 17th with St. Patrick. Patrick was born into a wealthy family in Roman Britain. However, as a young child, he was carried away to become a slave by the Druid people of Ireland. Of course, growing up as a slave in Ireland, he lacked the proper education that he would have received at home in Britain. Unmistakably, this would change his life forever. While in his late teen years, or perhaps even early adulthood, Patrick received a vision in a dream telling him to stow away on a boat and return home to Roman Britain. Patrick acted upon this vision, and he was able to stow away on a ship and return back home to Roman Britain. All seemed wonderful in Patrick's life. He was reunited with his family. Many would have expected him to pick up where he had left off and continue on as part of society. However, Patrick began to quickly notice that he was unable to interact with his peers, as one might expect. His lack of formal education had really hindered his ability in the world. Nonetheless, Patrick felt a call of God to be a minister of the gospel. He went off to study to become a priest. However, many did not think this possible with his lack of Latin education from early childhood. However, this lack of education only encouraged Patrick to study theology and scripture even harder and in a vision he felt the call to return to Ireland. Patrick's initial request to be sent to Ireland was rejected as the church favored higher educated people. Yet, these attempts were unsuccessful and they eventually sent Patrick considering that they had nothing to lose. Patrick's ministry in Ireland was highly successful. Not only was he able to bring the gospel to these people, but he was also to bring a touch of the modern world with him. There are many legends around Patrick's ministry in Ireland one of which is that he cast all the stakes into the sea. Another is that he used the clover, the three leaves of the clover, to represent the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost of the Trinity. Originally, St. Patrick was not depicted using the color green, but instead he was depicted wearing the color blue. 
And now it is time to determine whether or not this is hot, not or sanctified. So we'll hear from Amanda first. So in the conversation of hot, not, or sanctified about St. Patrick, I think there's something that's really interesting. He's most well known for using the three-leaf clover as an example of describing the triune God. But maybe a better example, a better illustration of who God is, is not a three-leaf clover, but instead the life of St. Patrick, a life of true reconciliation and forgiveness that goes back to his captors and preaches the good news that God has come and has come for them to be transformed and to be made whole. And so I think because of those reasons, the story of St. Patrick is definitely an example we should follow. So definitely it is hot. Very good. And Amanda brings up a good point about the mythology that's around St. Patrick. Again, even beyond just the idea of the the clover being used to represent the Trinity or even the idea of the snakes being driven out of Ireland, there's a lot of mythology that's around Patrick. But at the same time, we have some good historical evidence surrounding him as well. Anthony, what are your thoughts? Hot, not or sanctified? Uh, I would say hot, definitely. And I think, um, you know, if I have to give a good reason, he did plenty of good things. But I think that um, even though he might have been seen as uh, starting out with a handicap, he didn't allow that to, to stop him from being an yeah. active servant in ministry. And he actually did go and um, do some very successful work. Yeah, St. Patrick really did some phenomenal work, especially in the contrast to what people expected of him. We didn't really go to all the details of it with that short video that we had there. But as we examine St. Patrick, the church had actually sent a at least one other bishop to Ireland before him, and they came back saying these people are they're pagans, they're they're hopeless, they're they're basically people who are just the, the scum of the earth. There's no way that anybody's ever going to bring salvation to them. There's no way that the modern world will ever go here. St. Patrick is really sort of a last resort the church has for dealing with them. And as we examine history, there's a little bit of a suggestion that it's kind of their last resort of dealing with Patrick because they have really low expectations of him. So it's like they're going to kill two burns with one stone by sending him to Ireland. Yet he goes there and we see that he is wildly successful. A lot of times there's this idea that wisdom and IQ correlate with one another. They really don't, though that being said, we can't have any way of testing how intelligent St. Patrick actually was or whether he was just somebody who was very wise and very just capable of using the resources they had well. But either way, I definitely think that St. Patrick is a hot piece of theological inspiration. He does a lot of good things for us. A lot of people want to attribute him as being the first modern missionary. I don't really know that I'd go that far. We do see a lot of people throughout the history of the church, even if we go back to, to Paul's missionary journeys, we see people going to evangelize to others. I'm not so on board with the, it must be the first of something to be special. We've got a weird place in our culture where everybody is over-obsessed with something being the first of a certain demographic or whatnot. Nonetheless, St. Patrick does a lot of phenomenal things. He really brings the modern world to the Druid people, and he helps do so much for, for that area. Another thing that I thought was really interesting, well, uh, especially inspirational, I suppose, is that, um, you know, I mean, I really... He may have gotten more well adapted to his place in Ireland. Yeah. But he must not have enjoyed it that much if he was if he ran away also to Roman Britain again. Well, so he was a slave. Yeah. <laughs> he, I'll give him that. He he was a slave in his his early lives and he was doing something along the line of shepherding, we don't know for sure. Interestingly, going back to the place that you were a slave of was pretty much a guaranteed execution. You would be killed, sort of like a death yeah. sentence. And he kind of overcomes that. Another thing that's really interesting, too, Patrick is known for not being very good in, in his writing. And we know this mm -hmm. because of the evidence we have from his written history. 
One of the few documents we have from the 4th century Northern Europe are the writings of Patrick, which is really phenomenal that somebody who was assumed not to be very literate is actually one of the few people who have surviving documents written by them from that period. So it's really interesting how all of that worked out. I think he's a great inspiration for us, someone to follow in their footsteps for sure. A, a great I'm pointing out just like, that's a that's a pretty hard calling to answer to go back to a place where you were a slave. Yeah. You know, that's a big deal. So that in itself is pretty inspirational. It is, it is. Oh, and he originally wasn't associated with the color green either. That's also something interesting that is so unexpected. Again, everything turns green for St. Patrick's Day, but that really wasn't the original intention. They thought green was a more fitting color for him because he was sort of humble and down to earth. But we'll have that discussion for another day. Anyways, we're going to wrap up this segment now, so bear with us. And now for our final segment, instead of doing a devotional, we're instead going to let Anthony of Egypt read to you from the phone book. Perk and Cork, 730-6898. Perk, Perky Brothers, LLC, 760-5568. Actually, that was quite horrifically boring, so let's go instead do something else. And this is how to play Clue. Place all six weapon tokens and all six character tokens in the center of the board, even if there are fewer than six players. That too, giving instructions on how to play board games, was incredibly boring. So why don't we just wrap up this with a little bit of the joy of synthesizing, where we can have fun with some synthesis music, and investigate what it means for beauty to be the interpretation of truth. Welcome to the joy of synthesizing. Together we're going to have fun making a little music. And we've got some colorful neon chords here. Our synthesizers really like neon cables. We're gently going to take our cable. Oop. These cables are a bit of a devil. Sometimes you've got to get the devil out of your, your synthesizing cables and it will start recording. Sort of like how the triune god has one unified will, one unified purpose, and one unified morality. Let's change this algorithm back up, cut the velocity back down. Something nice and harmonious together, a nice sequence as they, they frolic together with one another. Very happy. Well, our cork board may not be so beautiful to music, but we